Hello and welcome to the role of executive power and discretion under the rule of law, a conference held at Stanford University's Hoover Institution in March of 2015. Hosted by distinguished visiting fellow Alan Meltzer and senior research fellow Ken Scott, the conference is part of Hoover's initiative on regulation and the rule of law, which conducts research and analysis on the foundations of the market system, private property rights, and the rule of law in relation to a free society. This podcast features Zachary Price of the UC Hastings School of Law, presenting his paper, Waving Rules of Law. The discussant is Michael Asmanow of Stanford University, and was recorded on March 5th, 2015. So my paper uh, addresses some central legal, constitutional, and rule of law questions relating to executive waivers. And what I mean by waiver is executive action that purports to uh, cancel a statutory legal obligation. So a waiver, in other words, is something that goes beyond just not enforcing a law, uh, but instead purports to change the content of regulated parties' legal obligations. And waivers of various sorts are a common feature of modern administration at all levels. In particular, they're a fairly pervasive feature of conditional spending grants from the federal government to states. Uh, but what I want to focus on is uh, more central waivers, waivers that cancel central features of a statutory regime based on claimed organic discretion of an agency, uh, roughly what two other scholars have called big waiver as opposed to little waiver, sort of piecemeal routine waiver, things that, that, that get more at the heart of, of uh, what's going on in a statute. And I think we've seen waivers of this sort become a more prominent feature of administrative law in three different ways. And for reasons I'll uh, discuss in a moment, I think these are all likely to continue. So first of all, we've seen a number of important recent statutes include provisions that expressly authorize waivers. Uh, for example, the Affordable Care Act authorizes waivers beginning in 2017 that let states uh, get out of central requirements of the law if they meet certain conditions. Uh, also, the No Child Left Behind Act lets the Secretary of Education gives, um, gives him, in fact, even broader authority to waive uh, most key features of that law. Um, uh, and it's the requirements it imposes on states receiving federal funds. So that's one, one feature is a sort of statutorily authorized waiver of central features of a statute. Uh, but the second development is we've also seen some examples of executive authorities claiming power to waive uh, central statutory provisions even without that sort of explicit authorization. Uh, best example here is Department of Health and Human Services ongoing suspension of certain insurance coverage requirements in the Affordable Care Act. Uh, but there are some other examples, uh, delay of the employer mandate, uh, but also some tax uh, waivers and tax requirements to facilitate bank mergers during the financial crisis. And I'd also mention the controversial immigration policies here uh, have a certain family resemblance. So they might not be a pure waiver of the sort I'm describing. So that's the second development is sort of unauthorized uh, big waiver. Uh, but then a third development is we've seen executive officials claim power to leverage waiver authority to impose alternative regulatory requirements. And again, on some level, this is a very common feature of uh, administration, of, of grant uh, administration at the federal government. Uh, but along with this increase in scale of the waivers provisions themselves, it's also acquired more prominence. And uh, the most significant example, at least right now, has to do with the implementation of the No Child Left Behind Act. So that law 
allows the Department of Education to waive central requirements of the statute, uh, but the Department has exercised that authority uh, by requiring states to agree to new, quite extensive uh, conditions in exchange for receiving those waivers. And so that example has obviously become a quite partisan issue, uh, but to make clear the broader significance, the, the Bush administration earlier made some similarly aggressive use of conditional waivers in, uh, with respect to important Medicaid programs. Um, so I think this is a phenomenon that if waiver remains around is, is going to be something that need, requires thought about how it should be exercised. Uh, so these developments may mark a new trend for reasons I'll talk about in a moment. Um, I think we're likely to see more of these things. But uh, in keeping with the theme of the conference, I think they raise some difficult questions about how the rule of law operates uh, with respect to this, these types of executive action. So first of all, I mean, what, what do we mean by the rule of law? It's a somewhat imprecise term. Um, in keeping with uh, Professor Arlen's account, I think at least one central aspect of it is a sort of principle of external constraint. So law-bound governance is governance in accordance with externally derived predetermined criteria that are then fairly and neutrally applied. So it's basically the antithesis of rule in accordance with personal whim or sort of idiosyncratic uh, preferences. It's governance in accordance with predetermined criteria. And so a lot of administrative law, I think, uh, focuses on how to render administrative governments consistent with the rule of law in that sense. Um, and as we've already seen, I mean, how well that system operates in general uh, may be open to question, and uh, other papers here address that point. Uh, but the puzzle I want to address in this paper is that large-scale waivers wave raise potentially different problems for these sorts of rule of law values from the sort of more affirmative delegation that's more conventionally the focus of administrative law. So in essence, waivers fit uneasily with that principle of external constraint because, after all, they amount to doing something different, perhaps even opposite, from what the agency's organic statutes provide for. So the basic question is how to reconcile that sort of administrative action with rule of law principles. Uh, so that's the basic uh, question I'm trying to uh, address in the paper. And what I want to do in these remarks is run briefly through uh, my three examples, the statutorily authorized waivers, statutorily unauthorized waivers, and conditional waivers, and then say a few words about uh, potential remedies for abuses and how to, how to um, constrain these authorities. Uh, but first of all, let me, let me, as I suggested, say a word about why I think we're seeing these developments and why they might be likely to persist. So I think we're seeing a, a convergence of some legal and political developments that may explain why, on the one hand, we see major legislation including this type of waiver provision, but also executive officials claiming this sort of authority or quasi-waiver type authorities in other areas. So one development is in the background, we have the general prevalence of discretion administration, and particularly the prevalence of enforcement discretion. Agencies typically have nowhere near adequate resources to enforce their mandates, so an extensive non-enforcement is a pervasive feature of regulatory activity. And I think this matters here because it encourages a sort of optional conception of law that makes waiver perhaps seen seem unremarkable, perhaps even desirable in some contexts as an alternative to the sort of enforcement discretion that pervades uh, administration. Uh, so that's one sort of big picture background development, uh, but it intersects with a more immediate problem, which is the sort of um, partisan gridlock uh, that we've seen develop in Washington. We have two main political parties that have congealed into ideologically distinct and unified to some degree even geographically separated coalitions. 
and that means that their divisions are more intense, compromise is more difficult. During periods of divided government, we get, we get the sort of legislative gridlock that we see uh, in, particularly in the current administration. I think that matters in a couple of ways. One is, is that it puts pressure on the executive branch to address constituent demands through executive action. And uh, for better or worse, I think that's an that's a important practical explanation for a lot of what we see with the Affordable Care Act waivers, the immigration policies, and the No Child Left Behind uh, conditional waivers. Um, it, as some other scholars have suggested, it may also, though, explain why we see more statutes with waiver-type waiver structures. Uh, because in this environment, it may not be surprising to see Congress wanting to keep the executive branch on a shorter leash, writing more details in the statute as an initial matter, but nonetheless using waiver provisions to create uh, a degree of flexibility. So that's why I think we might be seeing this, and uh, if that's right, why it might be important to figure out how to think about these problems. So let me now run through them just very briefly and start with the question of authorized waivers. So is it permissible for Congress to make this sort of delegation, sort of odd delegation, to do away with a law that delegates the authority in the first place? Is there anything particularly troubling from a rule of law perspective about this type of delegation? I think the answer is no, that, that these should be understood to be permissible and, and even desirable as a basic administrative structure. From a non-delegation perspective, delegated waiver power strikes me as no more troubling, possibly even less troubling, than, uh, as, than the sort of affirmative delegation of regulatory power that's now commonplace. So in a nutshell, if Congress could delegate the power to fill in the details of a regulatory regime, then there's nothing particularly exceptional about providing the details in the first place and letting the, the agency strip some of them away. There's one Supreme Court case that suggests otherwise, the Clinton versus New York line item veto case, but I think that's probably wrong and should be understood narrowly in any event. There might also be a sort of monitoring argument that uh, it's harder for Congress to police this type of executive action to constrain the way that delegated authority is exercised. Uh, the idea would be that if an agency overregulates, then Congress only needs to repeal the regulation and return to a baseline of non-regulation. But if an agency waives a legal requirement, then Congress has to agree to more, to, to reimpose an affirmative requirement, which in principle might be more difficult. There may be some force to that, but I think for the same reason, the failure to override is also less consequential. It means that you're uh, returning uh, regulated parties to a base, the executive action is returning regulated parties to a baseline of non-regulation pursuant to a process that Congress itself provided for. So I don't think there's a particular non-delegation problem here. What about the rule of law uh, point? So in my view, this type of arrangement actually carries significant potential rule of law benefits if it's implemented properly. So if a central rule of law problem today, as some others have suggested, is this sort of legal overbreath, ex excessive executive enforcement discretion, then laws authorizing this sort of waiver might provide a useful mechanism for uh, cabining uh, the scope of, of regulation for addressing that sort of problem. And so if this sort of structure, uh, furthermore, if, if from a non-delegation perspective, if one of the problems is Congress's sort of punt of abdicating regulatory authority, then if this sort of structure allows us to adapt regulatory regimes to circumstances, but um, allow Congress to provide more detail in the regulation as an initial matter, then that's also a sort of win in terms of rule of law values, I think. So that's, that's authorized waiver. Now what about unauthorized waiver? And 
the question here is if waivers, if authorized waivers carry these sorts of rule of law benefits I've described, isn't the same thing true of waivers in general? So to return to one of my examples, be concrete about it, you know, if an agency isn't going to fully enforce a legal requirement, if it can't do it or won't, uh, such as, for example, the minimum coverage requirements in the Affordable Care Act, uh, isn't it better, is it more consistent with the rule of law for the agency to make that policy transparent and binding so that regulated parties can then organize their behavior accordingly? I think there's force to that view, but I think it's, it's ultimately wrong for a couple of reasons. I think unauthorized waivers are not permissible. My main reason for thinking that is that just a basic formal constitutional argument that this type of agency authority is very difficult to square with the basic constitutional architecture. Take care clause, other features of the Constitution impose a basic obligation on the executive branch to execute uh, the laws, execute policies that the legislature has imposed. So enforcement discretion, uh, though it can be troubling from a rule of law perspective, is consistent potentially with the structure uh, insofar as it only involves choices about where and how laws are going to be applied. But going beyond that, canceling legal requirements, changing the content of legal requirements, uh, or even adopting enforcement policies that amount to an effective equivalent uh, is another matter. It's a more inherently more legislative sort of action um, and a, violation, a stronger violation of the executive obligation to execute statutory policies. And furthermore, even from a rule of law perspective, if we t return to my principle of external constraint, then there's also an argument that these are less consistent with the rule of law. What the rule of law argument in favor of waiver-like policies overlooks is that transparency and predictability in this sort of context comes at the cost of legislative supremacy and the external constraint on executive action provided by the statutes the agency is enforcing. So the, the risk is they're going to they decouple the executive action uh, from the policy, the intelligible principle that Congress provided by enacting the statute that the, that the agency is administering. So for all those reasons, I think uh, without specific authorization, Congress can authorize a sort of waiver, but uh, agencies shouldn't presume authority to make it without that sort of authorization or to do the effective equivalent. Now the last question um, is that if authorized waivers are permissible, what sort of power should they be understood to provide? Um, is it only a power to waive or is it also a power to condition, to impose alternative requirements uh, in exchange for the waiver? Um, so this issue, again, I mean, has, has immediate practical relevance because of the importance of some of these statutory waiver provisions. And ideally, the statute itself would be clear about how the waiver is supposed to be authorized. But uh, in many of these cases, there's significant ambiguity. The No Child Left Behind Act, in particular, doesn't provide much guidance at all. And so we need some sort of default rule that, that as in other administrative law areas, gives effect to underlying constitutional and rule of law values. And so we need some baseline understanding. What, sh what should that baseline rule be? So in my view, first of all, agencies should generally presume some limited conditioning power. So if the basic objective of waiver provisions within this sort of statutory scheme is to provide a mechanism for flexibility within the context of a detailed structure, then uh, presuming some flexibility imposed conditions on waivers may enable the agency to better effectuate the core objectives of the statute. In other words, imposing conditions, alternative requirements might let the agency provide flexibility while still advancing the statute's basic goals, coming out ahead in terms of the underlying statutory 
purposes. So I think most people look at this, uh, agree with that, perhaps not, but I think what, what's really puzzling about this and what hasn't been analyzed adequately is just how difficult this may be as a sort of matter of statutory construction. And there are a couple dimensions to that. One problem is that there's a hard question about the level of generality at which to understand a statute's basic purposes. So consider the No Child Left Behind Act example. So it, and the basic, the statute is very detailed, the conditions are very detailed, probably the, the cleanest argument for a conflict between the conditions that uh, the agency imposed is that the statute specifically prohibits the Department of Education from imposing a national curriculum on the states through its administration of the grant program. Um, what the conditions do is require states to adopt uh, curricula that satisfy certain requirements, though promulgated by the states, uh, as a condition of receiving the waiver. So, so it's viewed as, in effect, a sort of federalization of curricular requirements. And there are other ways in which the, the structure of the conditions departs pretty fundamentally from the, the low-level choices made in the statute itself. So we could say at a very high level of generality, the waivers advance the statute's basic objective of improving student outcomes in some measurable, accountable way. But then at a lower level of generality, they depart in fundamental ways from the more specific choices that the statute makes about uh, what goals to advance and how to do so. So one question is, what is the right level of generality? Uh, there's also a deeper problem, I think, that uh, at least when the statute isn't specific about it, uh, understanding what sorts of waivers are consistent with statutory objectives is a sort of inherently difficult, even paradoxical sort of inquiry, which comes back to my central question about waivers and the rule of law, is this inherent tension between advancing a statute's goals by taking away some of its requirements. So I think the goal here is to strike a balance that realizes the potential benef the benefits of waivers while um, minimizing their potential dangers. And in essence, the the potential benefit, as I've described, is encouraging greater congressional control over the details of policy. The danger is that Congress will use this structure to impose wholly aspirational standards, fully expecting that they'll ultimately be waived, and then the executive branch will, will take uh, the political heat for that. And in some ways, that's probably the story of No Child Left Behind. So in light of that sort of balance, I think understanding statutory purposes at a low level of generality and requiring accordingly a higher burden of justification for waivers and waiver conditions strikes me as more consistent with those objectives. First of all, it's perhaps somewhat hopeful, maybe even naive, but limiting the agency's flexibility in principle should encourage Congress to write a more serious first draft in the first place. Uh, if they know that on some level their choices are gonna stick, then um, that should impose some discipline uh, as an initial matter. But in addition, in terms of the, the rule of law principles, this, this structure is more desirable because it tethers the agency's discretion more closely to the external direction provided by the statute. Now, but again, that brings back to the question of, of figuring out what sort of cancellation is going to best advance the statute's goals. And here, um, to turn to the sort of question of remedies, I think a fundamental problem here is that that often may not be a fully manageable inquiry for courts. Uh, there's inevitably going to be a great deal of deference with respect to waiver conditions because they'll involve difficult factual judgments, but also just basically policy-type judgments about what to emphasize in a statute and what to, what to let slide. And so it may be the best that courts can do is uh, 
enforce a requirement of reasoned explanation in light of statutory objectives, and there are some cases that push in that direction. Beyond that, I mean, there could be in cases of a more direct conflict, there could be an important role for courts to play uh, in, in uh, policing whatever statutory constraints there are that are more specific. Um, there are some potential standing and reviewability problems, but I think those are ultimately surmountable for reasons I can discuss. But I think this, this does connect the, to the extent I'm right that there may be a problem of manageability here. I think um, that's true also of a lot of broader enforcement questions, and there may be a need in this area as in some others for a sort of reinvigorated departmentalism where courts uh, structure their decisions around a more forthright acknowledgement of a basis in limits on the judicial capacity and distinguish that from the content of the executive legal obligations in the first place. So in other words, a stronger assertion by courts that in some contexts the executive branch has obligations, uh, but the, the court uh, lacks capacity to review them might push us in a direction of greater uh, legal responsibility and compliance by the executive branch, even if those duties are not going to lead to judicial invalidation. So these are my um, thoughts at this point, and I look forward to your reactions. But in the meantime, we'll hear from uh, Michael why everything I've said is, is wrong. Well, thank you, Zach, and thank you to you, Alan, for inviting me. And I'm especially uh, sad that my great colleague, Ken Scott, um, who's the co-promoter of this program, uh, can't be here. Um, so, th Ken, this one's for you. <laughs> um, so, Zach Price's paper, it's on a tremendously important subject of modern administration, this question of waivers. Uh, there's an, and there's a budding literature on the subject. And there's this vital distinction, which I'm going to dwell on a lot in my comments, uh, between big waiver and little waiver. So little waivers are the decisions case by case not to apply an existing statute or, or regulation to somebody. Big waiver is a generalized policy of some agency um, not to apply the statute or regulations to a particular area. And it's, this is very similar to the distinction between rulemaking and adjudication that all of us in administrative law organize all of our work behind. Little waivers are like adjudication, they're, they're specific application, and big waivers are general application, and so like rules. And as we know in administrative law, it's that borderline between rulemaking and adjudication that causes a lot of problems. And so I'm going to talk more about little waivers here than Zach did in his paper. So I, I agree entirely. I'm too close. Oh, sorry. Um, I agree entirely that big waivers that are authorized by statute are a good thing for all the reasons that, that Zach discussed. And I think his paper also is a great contribution on the subject of conditional waivers and the requirement that a condition uh, be germane to the statutory purpose. And I agree with him a lot about remedies. But I don't agree with part three of his paper. Uh, that is, that unauthorized big waivers uh, violate the rule of law as well as the Constitution. So I would like to develop an argument, uh, and I'm sure this will provoke some considerable discussion, that big waivers that are not authorized by statute um, should be permitted, not in all cases, but in particular cases, in the three particular cases I have in mind, 
relate to agency prosecutorial discretion, to transition problems and deadlines, and to changes in circumstances since the law was passed. Um, now to get there, I need to reframe the discussion a little bit and start at a different point. Uh, and that point is discretion. It's, administrative law is almost completely about uh, agency discretion and the control of discretion. And discretion, as is often said, uh, can be wonderful and it can be horrible. We need discretion, discretion, the ability to, for an administrator to make a legally permissible choice between two alternatives is absolutely vital to the functioning of government. I mean, one of my favorite books is uh, Going by the Book by Bardak and Kagan, in which they talked about well, what kind of government is it that is woodenly says, that is the rule, there are no exceptions. But my case is different, there are no exceptions. It's terrible government. We need discretion, but discretion also needs to be checked. So little waivers are an example of discretion that is very useful. And notice that we tolerate little waivers even if they're not authorized by statute. It's rare that a statute actually says that an, that an agency has the power uh, to waive, to not, to not apply the statute or regulations, but nevertheless, we do accept this. And, and I believe we would regard it as an inherent power of agencies not to enforce a rule. Prosecutors, as we well know, cannot prosecute every violation of crime. They have to pick and choose, even if the police want them to prosecute every time. Um, and through plea bargains, some of them questionable, as Jennifer says, um, we have little waivers. Immigration officials, and I'll certainly come back to this one, um, have the power of deferred action. That is not to apply the immigration laws to deport somebody. They've always had this power. Um, and I think most people would feel it's, it's vital. Agencies can overlook minor violations of law that could trigger heavy civil, civil sanctions. And yet there needs to be a check on discretion. And I want to mention the great case in this area, because I don't think it's really discussed in Zach's ar uh, article, and that's WAIT radio, uh, having to do with um, a decision by the FCC to deny a waiver petition by a radio station. Uh, that wanted to broadcast at night, even though it wasn't a clear channel station. So it wasn't supposed to broadcast at night, but it had a technological fix and so on. But the FCC said, the rule says no, the answer is no, no explanation. And in this famous case by Judge Harold Leventhal, WAIT Radio, uh, it was held that, the agent, that this was reviewable and it had to be explained. They had to consider the application for waiver and they had to explain why it was denied. And Leventhal said, waiver is not necessarily a stepchild, but maybe an important member of the family of administrative procedures, one that helps the family stay together. Um, so getting to the, my point, if, if you agree with me that little waivers are vital, important, an inherent power of agencies, and yet should be subject to checking, where does that take you about unauthorized big waiver. So as I see this question, if an agency can make little waivers by low-level staff decisions, it should be able to adopt a big waiver in which it explains how little waivers will be exercised. And I, now I want to persuade you that this would promote the rule of law rather than undermine it. 
um, even though it isn't authorized by statute. First, the big waiver, which is mostly about how little waivers should be exercised, uh, is a decision that's going to be made not by low-level people, but by politically responsible officials near the top of the agency who will actually consider the merits of doing this. And so in public administration, I think we would say that that's a good thing, um, that policy should be made by politically accountable officials after careful consideration. I think that promotes the rule of law. Secondly, it assures that staff will act consistently in handling waiver applications, avoid selective prosecution or racially biased choices or overzealous enforcement, consistency and proportionality, that promotes the rule of law. It informs the public about what the law is. This enhances the ability to plan and to minimize transaction costs arising out of uncertainty in what, with, as to what the government will do. Transparency, promotion of legal certainty, rule of law values, very important. Fourth, it permits accountability. The media can attack the big waiver because they can see it. Congress can hold hearings or raise bloody hell if they don't like it. Um, higher level executive officials can hear about it and overturn it, cancel it. It's out in the open. It can be, can be an election issue. Candidates can take a stand on it. Accountability promotes the rule of law. The fifth reason why uh, relates to public participation through notice and comment. And th this one, it turns out, was I think a major failure of Obama's uh, immigration plan, DAPA, which I hope I'll have time to come back to, because he didn't use notice and comment. It should be used for this kind of big waiver in which government is radically limiting its discretion. And a, a number of famous cases involving policy statements say this. So public participation is the rule of law. Now, when do I think big waivers are, make sense? One is in transitional problems, like, for example, statutory deadlines. Agencies, statutes frequently give agencies a ton of rulemaking projects to do, set strict deadlines, and the agencies can never meet the deadlines because they don't have the resources to do it and because the problems are difficult. And so they will frequently not follow the deadline and they will get the job done later, maybe much later. I think we want them to have this ability. You don't want them to throw the rule out there before they're ready, a poorly considered, um, badly aimed rule. You want them to get it right. So I don't, I, that's a form of big waiver, not following the statute, that I think is good This in transitions. Secondly, law enforcement, prosecution, and so on. Um, and I think Jennifer would agree that that it's a good idea to structure the, the area of prosecutorial discretion, whether it involves who to prosecute or what the conditions of plea bargains are going to be, through a big waiver. Uh, we know today that, that over-criminalization is an enormous problem. Just speaking only of federal law, there's far, far more criminal laws than there should be. They, the prosecutors must pick and choose um, they must decide what's a big problem and where they should prioritize and where they should not. So if we know that's going to happen anyway, shouldn't it, wouldn't it be a good idea if the decision as to which laws to enforce and which not were made at a higher level? Thirdly, the change in circumstances idea. And here I'm thinking about um, my, my example of this is uh, the federal law against uh, marijuana. Um, when it was passed, marijuana was illegal everywhere, but today it's not. 
Medical marijuana statutes have been passed in many states and now recreational marijuana. So what, what are the feds going to do about the federal law against the use of marijuana? Uh, are you going to leave this to local prosecutors to decide whether to prosecute marijuana offenses in states that have made it legal? So Obama has said that they will not do that. That if the state has a properly functioning law permitting the use of marijuana, the feds will not prosecute. I think that's a good idea, and it arises out of this change in circumstances, unanticipated when the marijuana law was passed, that states would legalize it. So and lastly, I'd like to say a few words about DAPA. That's the uh, Obama, we all know about it, uh, his, his decision uh, to give deferred action and thus a green card to the parents of uh, children who are either American citizens or legal residents. Um, there's about 4 million, there's about 12 million uh, undocumented aliens in the country, and about 4 million of them will come under DAPA. Um, so DAPA is definitely a big waiver. It says we're going to give deferred action, and we always had the ability to do little waivers of uh, deportation. Now we're going to do a big waiver and tell you how we're going to exercise our deferred action policy. Now there's certainly a question as to whether it's legal. Um, and Zach, in a blog post, gave two cheers for it. Uh, and I think if you read the Office of Legal Counsel memorandum, it's 33 pages long, uh, you will conclude there's a strong argument that DAPA, in fact, is legal. That, I mean, just to mention one point here, and I, I don't want to belabor this, but the immigration law says um, specifically that DHS shall establish national immigration enforcement policies and priorities. Well, that's exactly what this is. Um, so you, we can agree or disagree on this point, but there's a good argument that it is, in fact, authorized. But let's assume that it's not. Okay, that's, let's assume it's not authorized. Is it proper or improper? Well, this is an area of enforcement discretion. There are 12 million undocumented aliens, and, and the DHS has the resources to deport not more than 400,000 a year. In other words, about 3%. That's it. They, don't, they couldn't deport more than that. They don't have the resources. So which 400,000 are you going to concentrate on? And DAPA essentially says we're going to concentrate our resources elsewhere and not on the, the people that are described by, by DAPA. Now, I think that is a big waiver, and it relates to enforcement discretion, and it promotes the rule of law. Now, whether we disagree with it on the merits, that's another matter. We may hate it on the merits. But as to whether it's an improper government action, um, I think that it, that it is. Uh, on the other hand, I believe Obama blew it big time by not going through notice and comment rulemaking. It was a terrible mistake. And if he wasn't advised to do so, his lawyers really let him down. It isn't even mentioned in the OLC memorandum. Um, a few more months of notice and comment and he could have cleared this away. And it's very appropriate here in something so very deeply controversial that a notice and comment procedure be used and to question perhaps the details of it and so on. So this, I think, was, was a big mistake. But in respect to the other four ways that I think little waivers promote the rule of law, I think you can make a very strong case for it. So I'm going to sit down now and let you try to tear me to shreds. Thank you.
Zach, do you have some? Uh, sure. So just a couple brief responses. Um, so I think that the sort of question that comes up in a lot of these examples is what really is the, the law? Is it the, the statute, at least in the paradigm I'm discussing, or is it just the agency's enforcement of the statute? And I think there's an important distinction that's generally uh, recognized and has a sort of constitutional basis in that light between enforcement discretion and waiver. And the two categories bleed together, but enforcement discretion in principle is choosing not, is forbearing against punishment of some completed violation, or perhaps not investigating it at all, uh, perhaps being aware of it, but choosing to concentrate on something else. Uh, but waiver, at least in its classic form, is, is a prospective authorization of something that's not allowed. And I think there's an important categorical distinction there um, that, that is something that's, that's important to maintain. Um, now, the way these, these blend together, though, is this question you're addressing of sort of how, how should, if we're going to have enforcement discretion, how should it be exercised? How, how definite should uh, enforcement policies be? Uh, do we want to prioritize the sort of top-down control and accountability that you get from a sort of public, uh, more clear, definite enforcement policy? Or do we want more, uh, a more indefinite policy um, that, that leaves more or, or no policy at all. So this is not, a, not an easy question as a sort of normative matter. Uh, I think my view of the sort of basic constitutional background is that we should presume enforcement discretion is an authority to make sort of case-specific exceptions from, from statute. So even if you had complete resources for enforcement, it would make sense for the executive branch. Part of having a separate executive branch is having a, a is putting space between legislation and enforcement so that there's an independent judgment about whether uh, the objectives of a law are really served by applying it in a particular circumstance. Uh, but what really drives the issue in the modern context is the prevalence of situations where agencies can't possibly completely enforce the laws and Congress most likely legislates against a background expectation that they're not going to do so. And this is what gives rise to these hard problems of how to understand what authority is being conferred on the agency or prosecutors uh, as a result of that. And I think in general, um, the, the way this conventionally works out is that uh, we do have policies, we do have a lot of enforcement policies that guide executive action for, because of this, the rule of law values of top-down direction and consistency and so forth but they generally have a degree of, of indeterminacy and they're quite often secret, they're quite often not transparent. And I would argue that those, those norms uh, advance, they, they're a way in which the executive branch confronting this problem of constrained resources and inevitable discretion uh, keeps faith with its underlying obligation to enforce the statute, that it's the statute that's the law and not, not simply the agency's capacity for enforcement. So that's the way I, I, I view that issue. But let me, let me just say also a word about, about DAPA so, and, and the OLC opinion. So I think the, I, the reason I cheer the OLC opinion is I think it agrees with basically everything I just said. I think it frames the problem correctly. And it, it recognizes that uh, enforcement discretion is a prevalent feature of administration, but nonetheless says there's a, there's a background obligation of the executive branch to implement statutory policies how to draw the lines there is often difficult, but it's nonetheless uh, an obligation we have to take seriously. And they further recognize that the immigration policies 
aren't just conventional enforcement discretion. And that's true for a couple reasons. For one thing, uh, they, they have a prospective <coughs> character. So the choice to defer action against an immigrant is what's, what's perhaps unique about immigration is that not deporting someone is inherently is, has a kind of prospective character because you're allowing them to, to remain. But nonetheless, that prospective character, they point out, makes it, makes it somewhat different. Uh, and what's more, it carries certain specific benefits that normally wouldn't come just from enforcement discretion, can entail work authorization, which is sort of affirmative statutory benefit. And so they recognize that, that uh, while this might be fit within a normal conception of executive power on, in the little waiver context or case-by-case -case application, to set up a large-scale program that, that administrates a law in this way is hard to square with, a, with a, the background conception of executive responsibility. And that's why the, I mean, the, the bulk of the opinion is then laboring to establish that this, this particular type of program in this context has been ratified effectively by Congress. Uh, I think some of the inferences there are debatable, but I think that accurately reflects the need for congressional ratification to exercise enforcement discretion in that sort of, that sort of way. Um, stop there. Barry Weingast. Uh, well, I've, been, I've enjoyed this panel very much, and I think that the, both of your remarks were, were really interesting, intriguing, and um, if uh, one more optimistic than the other. Uh, and in some ways, I think the, the question is missed. Uh, there's a missed question because you're talking past each other a little bit, and I, I want to suggest what that is, and I want to begin with the other mics. Mike McConnell's analogy this morning was 17th century England and the use of uh, 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 the, the, the king being unchecked in the use of the, of, of the prerogative to rule. Well, there, the king had another power in 17th century that was also subject to abuse, and this is the dispensation power. The idea that uh, 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 the king could um, arbitrarily say certain individuals were free from particular regulation, and the stewards during the 17th century used this to enforce uh, archaic regulations uh, and, 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 and solicit bribes from people or payments to say, well, I'll dispense the, the, your, your requ the requirement that you um, have, to ha have to follow this rule uh, if you give me the right amount of money. So in other words, there's huge opportunities here uh, for corruption, for harassment of the opposition, for taxation without parliamentary authority, uh, and, and so on. And so Mike, in, in, uh, so Zach in his discussion of this is, is, is quite negative. Uh, and for, for, for good reasons, I think. And then Mike wants to come down on the other side of it. Yes, this can be uh, the rule of law. Uh, and, but I think that that's a can be. I think it, it can be that there is a, no, you know, it's, it's in some ways a normative argument. that in principle, uh, it doesn't have to be. And so the dispensing power, yes, in principle, can give more flexibility uh, to adjust to changing circumstances. But how do we be assured that it's used for that as opposed to for the corruption? And it seems to me that that's where the real question comes in. That is, uh, uh, and I think that uh, you, Mike, suggested the nature of general rules would, would come about. But remember, politicians are very good at writing what seem like very general rules that actually pick out individual things. My favorite, of course, uh, there, there are hundreds. Everybody knows this. Richard could probably name 100 right now. Uh, yeah. Uh, my favorite is the, is the statute that gets Munn versus Illinois to the courts, which of course says something like a, a grain elevator, we're regulating grain elevators in every city in the state of Illinois with over 100,000 people. 
So, and of course, how many are there? There's one. Uh, yeah, which one did you know that? Never heard of the so, um, so the real question then I think comes down to this issue about which is gonna, which side are these uh, dispensations or waiver, waivers as they're now called going to uh, uh, take place and how uh, uh, arbitrary are the circumstances under which they're used. And I think um, really Zach raises a lot of troubling things here and uh, I find that all problematic. Well, no, no question the dispensing power argument is, is a strong one, and there's no doubt that waivers uh, can be badly abused, and it can be a, a, a fruitful source of corruption. Um, my, my point would be that that's a bigger danger with little waivers than big waivers. But you're going to have little waivers, and you can minimize the chances of selective enforcement or corruption uh, by... Uh, a big waiver policy that tells lower level officials um, when to exercise that power. Can I just drop a footnote and hear yours? Because it seems to me in addition to corruption, there's another issue, which is policy disagreement. I, I think of the analogy to impoundment, which every president had the authority not to spend money uh, appropriated by Congress. They always use that to economize or, or sometimes change circumstances. The Barbary War was over, so Jefferson canceled. He, he didn't spend money on five frigates and, and so forth. Then along comes Richard Nixon, and he doesn't spend money, not, be, not in order to serve the purposes Congress had set, but because he disagreed with Congress about, about it leading to 189 defeats in the courts of appeals and one in the Supreme Court, and the entire impoundment authority was ended. Isn't there an analogy here that it's one thing to use waivers and prosecutorial discretion in service of, of priorities that are, in, that are consonant with, with the statute versus using them because, you dis because the president disagrees with the statute and would like to have it repealed? I, I agree with that, Mike, absolutely. That's why I limited my argument at the beginning um, to three situations of enforcement, discretion, uh, transition, and change in circumstances. I do not think a big waiver is appropriate in, uh, where it's being done out of political disagreement with the statute. And isn't that DAPA? Well, that's one way to characterize it, but another way to characterize it is, yes, you, you, you can say that. But it is also true that it's an area of enforcement discretion where you could not remotely have the resources to deport more than 3%. So the question is, which 3%? But I, I concede you could phrase, frame DAPA as a disagreement with policy and therefore be against it. Uh, Jennifer Arlen. So, Zach, it's a very interesting paper. I, of course, am particularly interested in the part on conditional waivers, but the middle section is where it's getting most of the attention. What I find so interesting listening to the two of you is this seems to be an area where there's actually a strange dissonance when we think about the rule of law between separation of powers and, in fact, the rule of law. So we think of separation of powers as in service to the rule of law, so we want legislatures to write the laws, right? And what disturbs you about a big waiver is in effect the agencies are rewriting the rule, Congress did something big and they're narrowing it, which is in fact a form of lawmaking. So that seems a violation of the rule of law. On the other hand, you said a core principle of the rule of law is it should be law by sort of 
constrained. It shouldn't be personal views. It shouldn't be personal views of public aims. And therefore, you run into the challenge Michael gave you, which is, yeah, ideally, we'd want them to adopt the laws Congress said, but they can't. Conditional on being able to do it only 5% of the time, is it really more consistent with the rule of law to go ad hoc than to have something that puts all the constraints that you want onto the process of deciding how to do it? I mean, I think where you all are going is you're right. You want legislatures to adopt law, but once you acknowledge that it's not going to be enforced, how do you make sure it's not just personal preferences, idiosyncratic personal preferences, and shouldn't you be trying to adopt constraints on inevitable non-enforcement so it's not we just enforce for white people, not for black people kind of thing? I mean, sorry, since it's usually the other way around, right? And right. as a footnote, when I think about this, I think back on the SEC and Sarbanes-Oxley, right, less exciting than some of these other statutes. And, you know, we have this mandate to dramatically regulate corporations. We start down the road and we suddenly realize that what we've imposed on all publicly held firms is going to send small publicly held firms out of business. So they come in and say, you know, never mind, below, I think it was 75 million, you're off the table. I don't know that you want to cut that off. Yeah. Well, so these are the, it's a hard question. I, mean, I, I think there, there is this conflict when you're talking about the rule of law values here, which, I, which is coming out in our discussion, and I, and, I, and I recognize. I mean, one response to that is I think it, it reinforces the value of referring to the sort of formal constitutional argument, which is I, I think it's very difficult to read the constitutional structure to um, you can, it's consistent with enforcement discretion, but not with the sort of cancellation power and this historical background of the royal prerogative uh, is part of the story too, because that, that seems pretty clearly something that the framers were trying to repudiate in the take care clause. And so to the extent there's a kind of what's best as a policy matter disagreement that comes up in the area, it's, it's useful to refer back to that, to those principles. But so I think in light of that, that explains the way this often works, which is that we get to the result of, of, of top-down direction and control over idiosyncratic specific enforcement discretion or sorry, enforcement decisions uh, through centrally directed guidance and, and enforcement policies, but they maintain a sort of pose of indefiniteness and that respects the statute. So a great example of this is the marijuana policy, which in practice is a sort of green light for illegal businesses in states where the drug is legal, but is framed entirely in terms of priorities that you know very clear that we can't change the content of the statute. Anyone who, who still violates this is potentially subject to change in our priorities and future enforcement. So, there's, so it, it falls short of providing that sort of definite guarantee. And I think that at least is a line that even when you have this degree of, of discretion uh, is worth maintaining, partly because it does keep greater pressure on Congress to deal with these issues. I mean, I could flip around the SEC example. So if, I mean, it could be that in that case there, you could say there's an organic rulemaking authority that lets it 
create the exception. I don't, I don't know the details, but, but assuming that's not the case, then if that's really what the statute requires, um, doesn't, doesn't the agency suspending the law below that category take Congress off the hook and remove any real pressure on Congress to, to address the problem in a more permanent, definite way through legislation rather than through an executive policy that could, could easily be reversed in the future? And that dynamic may also be important in, in, in criminal law because you know we're in a moment now where for the first time in a long time, uh, there's a sort of push from all directions for a weakening of, of over-criminalization. And if that happens, if that gets addressed entirely through executive action, then do you risk sort of squandering a moment where you could create more durable legislative change addressing it? Um, so perhaps that, that as, a, as a pra another practical reason for this sort of view. Um, I wanted to address the prerogative power. Um, so glad that that came up again. Um, does it exist? Well, it does. Um, there is a, um, under the famous Youngstown case, there is a big twilight area. There, the executive shouldn't act when it goes against statutes and should act when it's in favor of statutes, but what if the statutes are silent? And, and, and I certainly think that's right. If the statute is silent as to whether an agency has the power to execute a big waiver, um, then I think they do have that power. I think that falls into the twilight area of the Youngstown case, and thus could be a modern uh, enactment of the prerogative. Alan Maltzer. But I, I want to tell a story which is, I think, relevant. <clears throat> How did I get here? Why are we having this conference? Well, it started because I was invited to the Council on Foreign Relations to talk about regulation. I think they expected me to talk about Dodd-Frank and that. Instead, I talked about how regulation leads to corruption, circumvention, and violations of the rule of law. And uh, at the end of my talk, the first person that got up said, uh, the council is supported mainly by Wall Street, said, and there were a lot of Wall Street people there. A lawyer got up and said, I'm a lawyer, I work on Wall Street, and who do you think shows them how to circumvent the law? Well, I didn't object to that at the time hmm. because that just reinforced my point. But as I left, I thought, Congress passes these laws. The president signs the law. It's the law of the land. I mean, here's a man who takes great pleasure, sees his, du his duty as circumventing the law. That didn't seem to me to be right. And so I began to look at how general that was, and I decided it was pretty general. That's why this program got started. Now, <clears throat> so where I disagree with Michael Asimov is, sure, small <laughs> kinds of things, there are just too many things that get in the way of applying laws which apply to all possible cases. So we're gonna have objections. But when it comes to the big issues, it seems to me that those just lead you to circumvention of the law. Uh, that, <coughs> that that's just what I think we want to try to avoid. Even if the law is not a very good law, then the law should be changed. And hopefully we could get enough evidence in some cases to get it changed. But we should not 
simply empower groups to, on their own, circumvent the law. That destroys public confidence in the law, which is the basis of the society. And I think the more we do of that, and we do a great deal of it, the more we get, we get rid of what makes, has made this country an exceptional place. So <clears throat> I believe that we want, we want to have rules, and we want to enforce the rules, and if they're not good rules, then we want to stop enforcing them. But we don't want to give people the independent vision that they have the right to circumvent the rules. That's my normative statement about this issue. Uh, Richard Epstein is next. Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of connection between this topic and the one that I'm going to talk about. No question. Guys, right? uh, and what I wanted to hear from both of you is, you talk about wave is big and small, but I want you to subdivide the big types into different types. So, for example, um, you start looking at the minimal med waivers that took place with respect to Obamacare, and you discover union plans are more likely to get them than employer plans, blue states are more likely to get them than red states, and so forth, and that their terms and conditions seem to be different in terms of the years and the variations and so forth. Um, there's clearly something that has to be wrong with that, and I don't know that that is selective waivers. And the second question, is that I don't think either of you really addressed what, again, is a key issue in guidance, which is the standing question. Government decides to make a waiver. Is there anybody, in your view, who should be able to challenge it? A competitor, for example, and so forth? Or, in fact, are these things simply left unreviewable except by the political process? Anyhow, well, Zach? I, I think there's frequently standing, Richard. Um, <laughs> if, uh, if, if A is granted a waiver and B is the competitor who is subject to the law that got waived for A, I think B meets the injury in fact and zone of interest tests. Uh, now, if the, if the waiver is, I, I'll just finish, if, if it's one where you don't have that, say a, a DAPA waiver, it doesn't, when I grant a deferred action to somebody, that doesn't hurt anybody else. Um, so it's, except in, in general, which is not sufficient to meet the injury in fact test, um, I believe there should be standing in such a case. And, you know, and, and really, Zach addresses this, and, and Congress defining new categories of people injured so that so it will be possible to challenge. I have no problem with a checking function. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with that. I think that the trouble with standing doctrine is it, I mean, this is an old criticism, is it creates a potential asymmetry. If you're, if you're a subject of regulation, then you clearly have standing, but if you're a regulatory beneficiary, and the agency shirks its duties, then there's no judicial review. And I think that that the Constitution doesn't require that sort of asymmetry. Congress should be able, in general, to define injuries, such as competitive injuries, um, diffuse environmental harms, all sorts of things that um, could enable someone to litigate the reverse problem. So, um, yeah. is if I'm a competitor, do I have standing to block his or only to demand mine or both? Well, that would strike me as more a remedial question. I don't know well, if, yeah. I mean, well, they call it a remedial question, which is it? <laughs> I, I would, I mean, I just. I don't know the answer, Frank. That's one of the reasons, probably. 
I mean, my intuition is that just under the APA, you would have a cause of action to challenge the waiver, which would be remedied by, if Absolutely. it's invalid, yeah, then it would be invalidated. Yeah. No, I don't think you can get one for yourself. I think you can challenge. It's like the basic data processing case is our, our leading case on standing in which the, the government gave an exemption to A, um, but it was harmful competitively to B, and B was able to get standing to, to challenge the exemption to A. No, he couldn't get a, the exemption himself. That wouldn't be right. Well, it's, it's my opinion that... that but we know this is inevitable when you, as long as you have little waivers. If you ban all little waivers, then you're going by the book, no exceptions. So if there are going to be little waivers, people not prosecuted and so on, um, that, that's inevitable. And the question is, wouldn't it be better rule of law-wise for a higher level person to adopt a big waiver saying this is when we will enforce the law and when we won't, instead of leaving it, just as Richard said, to a whole bunch of flunkies all around the country to play favorites? Larry Kogan. How do you, in, how do you consider uh, federalism issues when you look at waivers, uh, when you've got joint jurisdiction over a statute or shared jurisdiction, and the waiver will have an adverse impact on the states. Uh, did you get the question? I'm, I'm sorry, I yeah, didn't follow. It, in other words, when, you, when, the, when, when the feds decide to waive the requirement and it has an adverse impact on a state in a shared jurisdictional setting, is that one of the scenarios in which you think is a permitted situation? Sure. That, this is the case of Texas versus United States on DAPA. Texas got standing because DAPA would have required it to issue driver's licenses uh, to people who are going to uh, get deferred action. And tech, because of the obligation to issue driver's licenses, they, got, they had standing. I don't question that. I believe they did have to The state of Texas did have standing. Do, do they, the, 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 the federal government exercise discretion in waiving it for certain states and not, and not for others? Is there a well, scenario with it that you could envision where that might arise? The, well, there, there is a question here that is one of the puzzles, particularly with conditional waivers, perhaps waiver in general, is that if, you know, we want consistency, but often part of the design of a waiver provision is to enable experimentation and sort of enable laboratory of states. So this, the Medicaid waivers operate this way all the time, that you let one state try out some new program, and courts have actually understood that provision to require that the program be experimental, to provide information to the secretary. So if that's the function of the waiver provision in a particular statutory context, then it might be the case that you actually don't want to enforce consistency, that it's there, the, the point is to allow, allow a degree of arbitrariness. Um, and uh, I think that, that often has to be respected in the way the statute is applied. Nathan Chapman. Thank you. Uh, first question for Michael, second for Zach. Michael, um, I want to push back a little bit on your characterization of big waiver as just a big, small waiver. Um, it strikes me as different in a, a pretty significant respect. So when you suspend the law, you're publicly telling people it's not the law anymore. 
and therefore they're no longer subject to it and they have no incentive to comply. Whereas if you don't suspend the law but you make individual non-enforcement decisions, um, everyone still has the same incentive to comply with the law. It's still the law. Um, they just don't know for sure whether they're going to randomly or perhaps prejudicially or whatever get uh, enforced, be enforced. Um, so it does go to the heart, I think, of the, the sort of distinction between the lawmaking, law enforcing um, uh, function of the legislative versus the executive. But your point about how it can be difficult to tell uh, the, different, the difference in certain circumstances, of course, uh, I mean, that's sort of the rub. Um, and I, t I, well no, I, th I think your point's well taken, Nathan. I think that's fair that um, the big waiver tells people the law isn't going to be enforced and they had, even though little waivers are existing, no one knew whether they were going to get one or not. You know, the, DAPA simply is, says that for the people in this category, they will have three years worth of deferred action, no promises after that. So it, but, but still, you're right. Um, it does say the law is not going to be enforced, and now you know it won't be, and you act accordingly, even though. Um, but, I, you know, to my mind, uh, it promotes the rule of law to, uh, and be, because it allows people to plan uh, and, and, and makes the law predictable. And I, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I think statutes do that even better. Um, the point for Zach is the following. Um, I'm... I'm not so sure about uh, the breadth of your acceptance of authorized big waiver um, for a couple of reasons. One is that the early 19th century cases seem to be about statutes where Congress conditioned waiver on the executive's recognition that there was a specific fact or event that had occurred, oftentimes the event being directly within like the executive's foreign affairs uh, purview. Right, um, so I wouldn't go as far as Philip Hamburger does on that by, by any means, but it, it, it does at least raise a question I think I'd love to see you discuss in the paper a little more. Um, and the second is, um, I think the, the three-year suspension under DAPA is a great example for this, actually, is um, especially in authorized uh, uh, big waivers, the president, uh, because the president is subject to term limits and uh, is unitarian, the, pre the representative capacity, uh, the president is maybe uniquely subject to political capture in a way that Congress would not be if only Congress could suspend the law. Um, that may be right. I mean, that might be part of the sort of corruption story with resisting the suspending powers that may be um, part of what we get out of separating legislation from the execution is, is that the, the, there's a greater risk of, of corruption if the, uh, executive, if, if the executive branch is able to change the content of the law. Uh, I'd, have to, I'd have to think about that, but that, that might be right. John, you? Thanks. I'd, um, I think this is a question that uh, inspired by Bernie, but I think it's also common to, uh, with your paper, Jennifer Arlen's paper, which is this idea that rule of law is doing a lot of work for distinguishing what you think is appropriate and not appropriate. But when you look at both papers and say, where does this rule of law definition come from? There's, it's 
very weak. I mean, it's not weak in the sense that you're not, you have some strong ideas about what it is, but where does it come from? It reminds me very much of like the Lochner idea. You're you know, taking, conjuring this principle from somewhere outside the Constitution, and you're going to use it to start distinguishing what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, and why isn't it just as subject to the criticism that people made of using natural law at that time, that judges will manipulate it, you can't tell exactly what it is. Why isn't it better? And I think it's different than saying federalism and the separation of powers are not mentioned in the Constitution, because you can look at different right, textual provisions and see them in there. But I don't see where the, you know, the rule of law idea comes from if you're just looking at the positive text. Right? The only thing, obviously I should say the best you could do, I think, for this sort of... No, no, but, but he's using it, I think, here, and Jennifer is using it, saying these are things, this allows me to judge what's a proper use of government power versus not. Yeah, you use, the, use the mic, please. I use efficiency to judge. I mean, I'm most of my scholarship is it's not efficient. This is bad government. That's not in the Constitution. It's just... You know, it's a policy metric. But we know what, the, what we mean by the rule of law. We mean, broadly speaking, that we treat everyone under the law in the same way. In, you, you know, you know you, you use, use the mic, please. We're not going to realize in practice, but we know that that's an objective that the society has. I mean, we don't have any difficulty with that. If you ask the man in the street, what do you mean by the rule of law, he'll tell you something along those lines. Now, you know, there are all kinds of loose and ob objections that you can make to that, but fundamentally, you come back to the idea that everybody is equal before the law. It's, it's emblazoned on the Supreme Court's building, equality, equal justice under the law. Yep. But well, I do agree to a certain that. extent, I mean, which is that, that you know, I, I do think particularly on the question we've been, we've been focusing on, the reference to the, the sort of formal constitutional principles is important partly because uh, you can get into a fairly indeterminate debate about what's more consistent with rule of law values. So um, I've tried to think through um, what the rule of law case might be for um, the sort of position I'm advocating, but I ultimately think that it's partly just compelled because the Constitution is sort of foundational, the foundational law and we need to be objective about what it means, and I think that it implies, uh, you know, so if you step back, I mean, would, would having an executive suspending power um, be more or less consistent with the rule of law? I think that's a, that's a very difficult question to answer in the abstract, but I think that the Constitution says something fairly specific about it by requiring the president to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. So I think that's, that's a very important feature of, of the analysis. might happen to be consistent with some right, view you have of the rule of law. So I think Michael's point is just being, you're, he's a positivist, right? There's, you know, if to the extent there's a rule of law out there, it's in the Constitution or it's in the statutes or the text. And what I'm wondering, because you have a section on this in your paper, it says rule of law considerations, and you set out these principles, there's no citations to any authority, right? You're saying, this is what I feel the rule of law to be. I, I might agree with what you think it is, but, right, that doesn't necessarily mean that's what should govern our society. It seems sensible and reasonable. And I don't know if it might cohere with Richard's or Jennifer's view of what 
is a you know. <laughs> Well, it's it's a fair you point. I mean, yeah. very scary I mean, I would say that that I mean, so a lot of a lot of administrative law is really, uh, you know, a development of doctrines and principles that implement constitutional principles and uh, rule of law values through the sort of subconstitutional rules about how the administrative is going to operate. And so, I'm sort of thinking in that vein in terms of that being like what are the sorts of considerations that we think about generally in administrative design and how do they play out in this context. Um, but, you know, I think there's, there's force to the objection. At the end of the day, I might refer back to more objective analysis. So, I mean, to flesh it out, I mean, like what, how are we supposed to understand the authority that Congress confers when it enacts a statute like the immigration laws, they can't remotely be fully enforced. I mean, that's the fundamental question. How are we supposed to understand that sort of delegation? And I think reference to the formal constitutional structure is probably the primary consideration in developing doctrines there, but, but, but there's an inevitable aspect of sort of what's, what's best for America, what's, what's, what, what's more consistent with the rule of law, that I think uh, factors in. Yeah. I, I think of rule of law as a set of values, and, and I think it's, um, and whether something is consistent or inconsistent with the rule of law depends on um, how congruent it is with those values. That's what I was trying to do in my talk, was talk about the values underlying it, transparency, accountability, um, making decisions at higher rather than lower levels, um, consistency, uh, predictability, these kinds of things are typical of what you mean by a rule of law. That's why, in general, we can't get in trouble unless there's a statute uh, that says we can't do it. Um, but here we're in an area where it's difficult to say um, what the rule of law would provide. And I think the way to get a handle on that is to look at the values underlying it. Uh, Ed Rubin? wouldn't be a definitive determination, but uh, it's one that might tip the balance one way or another, and that is the extent to which uh, Congress is, uh, when it um, authorizes a administrative statute, is relying on the expertise of the agency uh, with respect to enforcement, and that's implicit in the statute apart from any definitive um, uh, uh, provision. So uh, Michael mentioned the um, uh, uh, Bardock and Kagan going by the book. So there was this, uh, one of the examples of a uh, conditional uh, waiver was the Maine 200 program where uh, OSHA said to um, uh, large employers who were responsible for a lot of industrial accidents, we will not go by the book. We will ignore all your minor vi uh, uh, violations if you can show us that you've on your own uh, figured out a way to lower the level of um, industrial accidents. And they did that. It was um, struck down by the uh, DC Circuit at the point where they were going to uh, make it a national program. But this might be a, a case where there was no authorization, but what happened was 
the agency had figured out a way to implement that was within its own expertise as an implementer that would not have occurred to Congress. And so an argument in favor of that would be that's implicit in the authorization to the agency even though Congress uh, didn't allow for that uh, particular big waiver in terms. Right, and it's germane to the purpose of the statute, which was to prevent injuries. Yeah, so I mean, that's a great example, but I think what it, what it illustrates is it's pretty easy to characterize that as an exercise of enforcement discretion that advances the, the goals of the statute. Um, and so, uh, I mean, there are often amnesty programs you might view the same way, or, or drug di treatment diversion programs, you might say the, the, the ultimate an agency is acting in a way that's faithful to the statute if it's exercising its enforcement discretion in ways that advance the overall goal of compliance. Um, I think what might distinguish um, some of the harder examples is where you suspect or know that that's not really the, the motivation of the agency, or it's harder to characterize the agency's choices um, in that way. Now, because we are out of time, but I have four people on the list, what I'm going to ask is that uh, Chris and Charles speak, and then some quick response, and then the last two. Uh, I'll, I'll be very brief. Uh, I hope that Zach and Barry read each other's papers very carefully before they complete theirs for publication, uh, because there's a lot of complementarity. Uh, Barry and his co-authors are writing about signing statements, but if you, if you generalize at what he's looking at, if once Congress passes a statute, then the executive branch can make changes to it. And he's talking about a signing statement, but the model is just they can move toward their policy. Um, <clears throat> with waivers, you can move in one direction toward a policy. Not You can't over-enforce, but you can under-enforce. And selection can sometimes uh, change it in ways that are not just uh, less, in, less enforcement. Um, uh, and Think about that. Think about what the effects uh, of uh, waivers of different kinds, including uh, Zach-approved waivers and Michael-approved waivers, are on the propensity for Congress to legislate. Because you can get very different, uh, you can get very different uh, results. Uh, <clears throat> I would say that for um, Michael Asimov's idea <clears throat> of unilateral waivers, I don't think the analogy is impoundment. I think it is the line-item veto. Uh, both constitutionally and institutionally, that what Michael is really for is a sub-sub-sub-line item veto that can be exercised at any time, not just when a president signs it, but continuously to change the statute. Uh, and I think that that has a lot of implications. I, I think that Barry would have a lot to say about the propensity to pass legislation if we know that the uh, president of either party coming and going can make changes in the future. Uh, the, uh, the, it seems to me that the distinctions you draw to cabin this policy uh, don't have much effect, in part because the executive branch will determine it and because the line drawing is difficult. I interpret you to say that in the first few years of a statute, the executive branch can change it at will because it's in transition. And then after the transition, the executive branch can change it at will because circumstances have changed so that the entire life of a statute falls into one or another of your uh, categories. Moreover, when somebody wants to change a statute, 
It's always going to be because some circumstances have changed. That's, that's why you would want to waive the statute for one reason or another, just on political grounds, but the, you can call it political just because the person <coughs> in power thinks that circumstances have changed. So <clears throat> while you sometimes uh, read in the editorial pages about uh, uh, DAPA, uh, conservatives saying, well, we're just going to change the capital gains tax or the corporate tax, I think that actually you would support unilateral change in the corporation tax because it is the people that want to change it is because circumstances have changed. Other nations have lowered their capital gains taxes. Ours is now raising very little revenue. We're, we're uncompetitive. <clears throat> All of the arguments for changing those tax rates are changed objective circumstances cases. So I, I actually think that your position is you can change all of those things at the executive level. So I, th I think it is a continuous line item veto, that is continuous ability uh, to, to change the statutes uh, at the executive level. I, I, I think... Well, I, I hope I'm, not. I'm not trying to care. <laughs> no, no, I'm I understand. I'm trying to understand I, I hope you that think is good policy. I hope it wouldn't cover um, the capital gains example yeah. because, well, because it doesn't arise out of little waivers. Um, the, they have, uh, the IRS has no ability, never has claimed okay, one. So, uh, not to, let's let, let's let each of the remaining people, uh, speak and, uh, so Charles is next. This is a very, very stimulating discussion. Um, I, I thought that, Michael, when you were talking about, um, the connection between democracy and the rule of law, I found that very disturbing. And then later on, it seemed to me that you were really almost conflating the definitions of the two. So I think that this is, a, a this is at the heart of some of what's um, not right about what you were saying about wanting to vest in executive uh, department officials who are at the highest political appointed level decisions because they are the most accountable. Well, of course, they're really not going to be necessarily because they're accountable in the sense that they're accountable politically in presidential elections, going to be um, defenders of the rule of law. They may be um, democratically elected officials, but the rule of law, as we pointed out, uh, Richard pointed out, you want to have non-discriminatory treatment. Now, if Congress passes a law, first of all, it's a larger supermajority that has to be in favor of it, but secondly, they can't pass a discriminatory law. They, they, whereas the executive branch can and can be very successful politically in doing so, can use its discretion that way. So the notion that democratic accountability will somehow defend the rule of law when applied to the executive branch, I don't think it's even true for the legislative branch, but as applied to the executive branch, I think that's preposterous. I would call that the Robespierre definition of the rule of law. And now Jesus and Barry Weingast is the last. Okay. Uh, and Barry, please be brief. Um, following up, Charlie, uh, there, there's been many different notions of the rule of law that have been mentioned, and I want to su suggest a categorization because there are three different components, I think, to thinking about the rule of law, and different people believe, emphasize one versus the other. Uh, so briefly, one is the Hayekian. So Hayek in Constitution of Liberty, et cetera, emphasizes certainty of expectations, the idea that tomorrow's laws are going to be today's laws, no arbitrary power. 
Lon Fuller argues uh, for the legal attributes as part of rule of law, and that's the generality, the prospectivity, uh, transparency, feasibility, those kind of things. Uh, and then Hart, in, in concept of the law, uh, argues that it's in part process. That is, there have to be rules governing the way the rules are chosen. Uh, and so different people can meet, different people, as it turns out, emphasize different ones of these. And I think we're talking a little bit past each other because one of us emphasizes one of those and not the other. Thank you, and um, we shall now have a break. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.